Hello and welcome. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time. This week we bring you two stories The Four Room Rug by Kate Douglas Wiggin and Miss Brill by Catherine Mansfield. Wiggin is most known for her novel Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, standard reading for girls of my generation. She was a dedicated educator. She and her sister created a training school for kindergarten teachers in the 1880s. Although she devoted so much of her adult life to the welfare of children, she had no children herself. This story is about the creation of a rag rug, an old tradition of making rugs from fabric saved from life events, such as wedding dresses and christening gowns. Our second story by Catherine Mansfield was a special request from one of our listeners. And it is a very special, sweet story. And now, The Four Room Rug by Kate Douglas Wiggin. Diadema, wife of Jot Bascom, was sitting at the window of the village watchtower, so called because it commanded a view of nearly everything that happened in Pleasant River those details escaping the physical eye, being supplied by faith and imagination, working in the light of past experience. She sat in the chair of honor, the chair of choice, the high-backed rocker by the southern window, in which her husband's mother, old Mrs. Bascom, had sat for thirty years, applying a still more powerful intellectual telescope to the doings of her neighbors. Diadema's seat had formerly been on the less desirable side of the little light stand, where Priscilla Hollis was now installed. Mrs. Bascom was at work on a new four-room rug, the former one having been transferred to Miss Hollis's chamber. For as the teacher at the Brick Schoolhouse, a graduate of a Massachusetts normal school, and the daughter of a deceased judge, she was a boarder of considerable consequence. It was a rainy Saturday afternoon, and the two women were alone, It was a pleasant, peaceful sitting-room, as neat as wax in every part. The floor was covered by a cheerful patriotic rug woven entirely of red, white, and blue rags, and protected in various exposed localities by button rugs, red, white, and blue discs superimposed on one another. Diadema Bascom was a person of some sentiment. When her old father, Captain Dennett, was dying, he drew a wallet from under his pillow— and handed her a twenty-dollar bill to get something to remember him by. This unwanted occurrence burned itself into the daughter's imagination, and when she came as a bride to the Bascom house, she furnished the sitting-room as a kind of monument to the departed soldier, whose sword and musket were now tied to the wall with neatly hemmed bows of bright red cotton. The chair cushions were of red and white glazed patch. The turkey wings that served as hearth brushes were hung against the white-painted chimney-piece with blue skirt braid, and the white shades were finished with homemade scarlet tassels. A little whatnot in the corner was laden with trophies of battle. The warrior's brass buttons were strung on a red picture-cord and hung over his daguerreotype on the upper shelf. There was a tarnished shoulder-strap and a flattened bullet that the captain's jealous contemporaries swore he never stopped unless he got it in the rear when he was flying from the foe. There was also a little tin canister in which a charge of powder had been sacredly preserved. The scoffers, again, said that the captain put it in his musket when he went into the war 
and kept it there till he came out. These objects were tastefully decorated with the national colors. In fact, no modern esthete could have arranged a symbolic symphony of grief and glory with any more fidelity to its ideal than Diadema Bascom in working out her scheme of red, white, and blue. Rows of ripening tomatoes lay along the ledges of the windows, and a tortoise-shell cat snoozed on one of the broad sills. The tall clock in the corner ticked peacefully. Priscilla Hollis never tired of looking at the jolly red-cheeked moon, the group of stars on a blue ground, the trig little ship, the old house, and the jolly moon again, creeping one after another across the open space at the top. Jot Bascom was out, as usual, gathering statistics of the last horse trade. Little Jot was building stickin' houses in the barn. Priscilla was sewing long strips for braiding. While Diadema sat at the drawing-in frame, hook in hand, and a large basket of cut rags by her side. Not many weeks before, she had paid one of her periodical visits to the attic. No housekeeper in Pleasant River save Mrs. Jonathan Bascom would have thought of dusting a garret, washing the window, and sweeping down the cobwebs once a month, and renewing the camphor bags in the chests twice a year. But notwithstanding this zealous care, the moths had made their way into one of her treasure houses, the most precious of all, the old hair trunk that had belonged to her sister, Lovis. Once ensconced there, they had eaten through its hoarded relics and reduced the faded finery to a state best described by Diadema as regular riddlin' sieves. She had brought the tattered pile down into the kitchen and had spent a tearful afternoon in cutting the good pieces from the perforated garments. Three heaped-up baskets and a full dishpan were the result, and as she had snipped and cut and sorted, one of her sentimental projects had entered her mind and taken complete possession there. I declare, she said as she drew her hooking needle in and out. I wouldn't set in the room with some folks and work on these pieces, for every time I draw in a scrap of cloth, lovers comes up to me for all the world as if she was setting on the sofa there. I ain't told you my plan, Miss Hollis, and there ain't many I shall tell, but this rug is going to be a kind of history of my life and lovey's wrought in together, just as we was bound up in one another when she was alive. Her things and mine was laid in one trunk, and the moths shan't eat me out of them all together. If I can look at em wet Sundays and shake em out and have a good cry over em, I'll make em up into a kind of dumb show that will mean something to me if it don't to anybody else. We was the youngest of thirteen, lovey and I, and we was twins. There's never been more than half of me left since she died. We was born together, played and went to school together, got engaged and married together, and we all but died together. Yet we were not a mite alike. There was an old lady come to our house once that used to say, Are there sister Nabby now? She and I ain't no more alike and if we want two. She just as different as I am t'other way. Well, I know what I want to put into my rag story, Miss Hollis, but I don't hardly know how to begin. Priscilla dropped her needle and bent over the frame with interest. A spray of roses in the center. There's the beginning. 
Why don't you see, dear Mrs. Bascom? Of course I do, said Diadema, diving to the bottom of the dishpan. I've got my start now, and don't you say a word for a minute. These two roses grow out of one stalk. They'll be loving me, though I'm considerable more like a potato blossom. The stalk's got to be green, and here is the very green silk Mother walked bride in, and Lovey and I had roundabouts of it afterwards. She had the chicken pox when she was about four years old, and one of the first things I can remember is climbing up and looking over Mother's footboard at Lovey, all speckled. Mother had let her slip on her new green roundabout over her nightgown, just to pacify her, and there she sat playing with the kitten Reuben Granger had brought her. He was only ten years old then, but he'd begun courting Lovis. The Granger's farm joined ours. They had eleven children, and mother and father had thirteen, and we was always playing together. Mother used to tell a funny story about that. We were all little young ones and looked pretty much alike, so she didn't take much notice of us in the daytime when we was running out and in. But at night, when the turn-up bedstead and the kitchen was taken down and the trundle beds were full, she used to count us over to see if we were all there. One night, when she'd counted thirteen and set down to her sewing, father come in and asked if Moses was all right, for one of the neighbors had seen him playing side of the river about supper time. Mother knew she'd counted us straight, but she went round with a candle to make sure. Now, Mr. Granger had a head as red as a sumac bush, and when she carried the candle close to the beds to take another tally, there were thirteen children, sure enough, but if they're wanting a red-haired Granger right in amongst the boys in the turn-up bedstead. While father set out on a hunt for our Moses, mother yanked the sleepy little red-headed Granger out of the middle and took him home, and father found Moses asleep on a pile of shavings under the joiner's bench. They don't have such families nowadays. One time when measles went all over the village, they never came to us, and James Slocum said there weren't enough measles to go through the Dennett family, so they didn't start in on them. There, I ain't going to finish the stock. I'm going to draw in a little here and there all over the rug while I'm in the spirit of planting it, and then it will be plain work of matching colors and filling out. You see, the stock is Mother's dress, and the outside green of the moss roses is the same goods, only it's our roundabouts. I meant to make them red when I marked the pattern and then fill out around them with a light color. But now I ain't satisfied with anything but white, for nothing will do in the middle of the rug but our white wedding dresses. I shall have to fill in dark then, or mixed. Well, that won't be out of the way, if it's going to be a true rag story. For Lovey's life went out altogether, and mine hasn't been any too gay. I'll begin Lovey's rose first. She was the prettiest and the liveliest girl in the village. She had more bows than you could shake a stick at. I generally had to take what she left over. Reuben Granger was crazy about her from the time she was knee-high. But when he went away to Bangor to study for the ministry, the others had it all their own way. She was only seventeen. She hadn't ever experienced religion, and she was mischievous as a kitten. You remember you laughed this morning when Mr. Bascom told about Hogshead Joet? Well, he used to want to keep company with Lovey, but she couldn't abide by him, 
and whenever he come to court her, she climb into the hogshead and hid till after he'd gone. The boys found it out and used to call him Hogshead Joyt. He was the biggest fool in Foxborough Four Corners, and that's saying considerable, for Foxborough was famous for its fools and always has been. There was thirteen of them there one year. They say a man come out from Portland, and when he got as fur as Foxborough, he kept inquiring the way to Dunstan, and I declare if he didn't meet them thirteen fools, one after another, standing in their front door yards ready to answer questions. When he got to Dunstan, says he, For the Lord's sake, what kind of a village is it that I've just went through? Be they all fools there? Hogshead was scared to death whenever he'd come to see Lovis. One night, when he'd been there once, and she'd hid, as she always done, he'd come back a second time, and she went to the door, not mistrusting it was him. Did you forget anything, says she, sparkling out at him through a little crack. He was all taken aback by seeing her, and he stammered out, Yes, I forgot my handkerchief, but it don't make no odds, for I didn't pay out but fifteen cents for it two year ago, and I don't make no use of it exceptin's to wipe my nose on. How we did laugh over that. Well, he had conviction of sin pretty soon afterwards, and perhaps it helped his head some. At any rate, he quit farming and became a bullockite preacher. It seems odd when Lovis wasn't a professor herself. She should have drawn to the most pious young men in the village, but she did. She had good orthodox bows, free and close Baptists, Millerites and Adventists, all on her string together. She even had one Cochranite, though the sect had mostly died out. But when Reuben Granger came home, a full-feathered-out minister, he seemed to strike her fancy as he never had before though they were always good friends from children. He had light hair and blue eyes and fair skin. His business being undercover kept him bleached out. And he and Lovey made the prettiest couple you ever see, for she was dark-complexioned and her cheeks no other ways but scarlet the whole during time. She had a change of heart that winter. In fact, she had two of them, for she changed hers for Reuben's and found a hope at the same time. "'Twas a good, honest conversion, too, "'though she did say to me she was afraid "'that if Reuben hadn't taught her what love was or might be, "'she'd never have found out enough about it "'to love God as she'd ought to. "'There, I've begun both roses, "'and hers is about finished. "'I shan't have more'n enough white alapaca. "'It's lucky the ma spared one breadth of the wedding dresses. "'We was married at the same time, you know, and dressed just alike. Jot wasn't ready to be married, for he wasn't any more forehanded about that than he was about other things. But I told him Lovey and I had kept up with each other from the start, and he'd got to fall into line or drop out of the procession. Now, what's next? Wasn't there anybody else at the wedding but you and Lovey's? asked Priscilla with an amused smile. Land, yes. The meeting house was cram-jam full. Oh, to be sure. I know what you're driving at. Well, I have to laugh to think I should have forgot the husbands. <laughs> They'll have to be worked into the story, certain. But it'll be considerable of a chore, for I can't make flowers out of coat and pants stuff. 
and there ain't any more flowers on this branch anyway. Diadema sat for a few minutes in rapt thought, and then made a sudden inspired dash upstairs, where Miss Hollis presently heard her rummaging in an old chest. She soon came down triumphant. Wasn't it providence I saved Jots and Reuben's wedding ties? And here they are, one yellow and mixed green and one brown. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to draw in a butterfly hovering over them two roses and make it out of the neckties, green with brown spots. That'll bring in the husbands and land. I wouldn't have either of them know it for the world. I'll take a pattern of that lunar moth you pinned on the curtain yesterday. Miss Hollis smiled in spite of herself. You have some very ingenious ideas and some very pretty thoughts, Mrs. Bascom. Do you know it? It's the first time I ever heard tell of it, said Diadema cheerfully. Lovey was the pretty-spoken, pretty-appearing one. I was always plain and practical. While I think of it, I'll draw in a little mite of this red into my carnation pink. It was a red scarf Reuben brought Lovey from Portland. It was the first thing he ever give her. And Aunt Hitty said if, if one of the Abel Grangers give away anything that cost money, it meant business. That was all fault or all, for there never was a more liberal husband, though he was a poor minister. But then they always are poor, without the rich. There don't seem to be any halfway in ministers. We was both lucky that way. There ain't a stingy bone in Jot Bascom's body. He don't make much money, but what he does make goes into the bureau drawer, and the one that needs it most takes it out. He never asks me what I'd done with the last five cents he gave me. You've never been married, Miss Hollis, and you ain't engaged, so you don't know much about it. But I tell you, there's a heap of foolishness talked about husbands. If you get one you like yourself, I don't know as it matters if all the other women folk in town don't happen to like him as well as you do. They ain't called on to do that. They see the face he turns to them, not the one he turns to you. Jot ain't a very good provider, nor he ain't a man that's much use around a farm. But he's such a favorite, I can't blame him. There's one thing. When he does come home, he's got something to say. And he's always as lively as a cricket, and smiling as a basket of chips. I like a man that's good company, even if he ain't so forehanded. There ain't anything specially lovable about forehandedness when you come to that. I shouldn't ever feel drawn to a man because he was on time with his work. He's got such pleasant ways, Jot has. The other afternoon, he didn't get home early enough to milk, and after I'd done the two cows, I split the kindling and brought in the wood, for I knew he'd want to go to the tavern and tell the boys about the robbery up to Boylston. There ain't anybody but Jot in this village that has wit enough to find out what's going on and tell it in an interesting way round the tavern fire. And he can do it without being full of cider, too. He don't need any apple juice to limber his tongue. Well, when he come in, he sees the pails of milk and the full wood box and the supper laid out under the screen cloth on the kitchen table, and he come up to me at the sink, and he says, Diademy, you're the best wife in this county and the brightest jewel in my crown. That's what you are.
He got that idea out of a duet he sings with Elmira Berry. Now I'd like to know that that ain't the pleasanter than tis to have a man do all the shed and barn work up smart and then sit around the stove looking as doleful as last year's bird's nest. Take my advice, Miss Hollis. Get a good provider if you can, but anyhow try to find you a husband that'll keep on courting a little now and then when he ain't too busy. Smooth things considerable round the house. There, I got so interested in what I was saying, I went on and finished the carnation, and some of the stem, too. Now, what comes next? Why, the thing that happened next, of course, and that was little Jot. I'll work in a bud on my rose and one on lovey's, and my bud'll be made of Jot's first trousers. The goods ain't very appropriate for a rosebud, but it'll be mostly covered with green on the outside, and it'll have to do, for the ID is the most important thing in this rug. When I put him into pants, I hadn't any cloth in the house, and it was such bad going, Jock couldn't get to Warham to buy me anything, so I made him out of an old gray cashmere skirt and lined him with flannel. Buds are generally the same color as the roses, aren't they? ventured Priscilla. Well, I don't care if they be, said Diadema obstinately. Well, what's to hinder this bud's being grafted on? Mrs. Granger was as black as an engine, but the little Granger children were all red-headed, for they looked after their father. But I don't know. You kind of got me out of conceit with it. I suppose I could have taken a piece of his baby blanket, but the moths never et a mite out of that, and it's too good to cut up. There's one thing I can do. I can make the bud with a long stem and have it growing right up alongside of mine. Would you? No, it must be stalk of your stalk, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, so to speak. I agree with you. The idea is the first thing. Besides, the gray is a very light shade, and I dare say it will look like a bluish white. I'll try it and see. But I wish to the land the moths had eaten the pine and blanket, and then I could have used it. Lovey worked the scallops on the edge for me. My grief! What interest she took in my baby clothes! Little Jot was born at Thanksgiving time, and she come over from Skowhegan, where Reuben was settled pastor of his first church. I shall never forget them two weeks to the last of my days. There was deep snow on the ground. I had that chamber there with the door opening into the setting room. Mother and Father Bascom kept out in the dining room and kitchen, where the work was going on. And Lovey and the baby and me had the front part of the house to ourselves, with Jot coming in on tiptoe, heaping up wood on the fireplaces so he to most roasted us out. He don't forget his chores in time of sickness. I never took so much comfort in all my days. Jot got one of the Billings girls to come over and help in the housework so to I could lay easy as long as I wanted to, and I never had such a rest before nor since. There ain't any heaven in the book of Revelations that's any better than them two weeks was. I used to lay quiet in my good feather bed, fingering the pattern of my best crocheted quilt, and looking at the firelight shining on Lovey and the baby. 
she'd hardly leave him in the cradle a minute. When I didn't want him in bed with me, she'd have him in her lap. Babies are common enough to most folks, but Lovey was different. She'd never had any experience with children either, for we was the youngest in our family, and it wasn't long before we come near being the oldest, too, for Mother buried seven of us before she went herself. Anyway, I never saw nobody else look as she'd done when she held my baby. I don't mean nothing blasphemous when I say "'Twas for the world like your photograph of Mary, the mother of Jesus. The nights come in early, so it was most dark at four o'clock. The little chamber was so peaceful. I could hear Jot rattle in the milk pails. But I'd draw a deep breath of comfort, for I knew the milk would be strained and set away without my stepping foot to the floor. Lovey used to sit by the fire with a tall candle on the light stand behind her, and a little white-knit cape over her shoulders. She had the pinkest cheeks and the longest eyelashes and a mouth like a little red buttonhole. And when she bent over the baby and sung to him, though his ears wasn't opened, I guess, for his eyes wasn't, the tears of joy used to rain down my cheeks. It was penny-reel hymns she used to sing mostly. Oh, diademy, she'd say, you was always the best, and it's nothing more'n right the baby should come to you. Perhaps God will think I'm good enough sometime, and if he does, Diademy, I'll offer up a sacrifice every morning and every evening. But I'm afraid, says she, he thinks I can't stand any more happiness and be a faithful follower of the cross. The Bible says we've got to wade through fiery floods before we can enter the kingdom, I don't hardly know how Reuben and I are going to find any to wade through. We're both so happy. They'd have to be considerable hot before we took notice, says she, with the dimples breaking out in her cheek. And that was true as gospel. She thought everything Reuben done was just right, and he thought everything she done was just right. There wasn't nobody else. The world was all Reuben and all lovey to them, if you could have seen her when she was looking for him to come from Skohegan, she used to watch at the attic window, and when she seen him at the foot of the hill, she'd up like a squirrel and run down the road without stopping for anything but to throw a shawl over her head, and Reuben would catch her up as if she was a child and scold her for not putting on a hat and take her under his coat coming up the hill. They was a sight for the neighbors, I must confess." But it wasn't one you could hardly disprove of, neither. Aunt Hitty said it was for tempting Providence and couldn't last, and God would visit his wrath on them for making idols of sinful human flesh. She was right one way, it didn't last, but nobody can tell me God was punishing him for being too happy. I guess he ain't got no objection to folks being happy here below, if they don't forget it ain't the whole story. Well, I must mark in a butt on Lovey's stock now, and I'm going to make it of her baby's long white cloak. I earned the money for it myself, making coats, and put four yards of the finest cashmere into it. Three years after Jot was born, I went over to Skohegan to help Lovey through her time of trial. Time of trial? I thought I was happy, but I didn't know how to be as happy as Lovey did. I wasn't made on that pattern. When I first showed her the baby, it was a boy, same as mine. 
Her eyes shone like two evening stars. She held up her weak arms and gathered the little bundle of warm flannel into them. And when she got it close, she shut her eyes and moved her lips. And I knew she was taking her lamb to the altar and offering it up as a sacrifice. Then Reuben come in. I see him give one look at the two dark heads laying close together on the white pillar and then go down on his knees by the side of the bed. "'Twa'n't no place for me. I went off and left them together. We didn't mistrust it then, but they only had three days more of happiness, and I'm glad I give them every minute. The room grew dusky as twilight stole gently over the hills of Pleasant River. Priscilla's lip trembled. Diadema's tears fell thick and fast on the white rosebud, and she had to keep wiping her eyes as she followed the pattern. I ain't said as much as this about it for five years, she went on with a telltale quiver in her voice. But now I've got going, I can't stop. I'll have to get the weight out of my heart somehow. Three days after I put Lovey's baby into her arms, the Lord called her home. When I prayed so hard for this little new life, Reuben, says she, holding the baby as if she could never let it go. I didn't think I'd got to give up my own in place of it. But it's the first fiery flood we've had, dear, and though it burns to my feet, I'll tread it as brave as I know how. She didn't speak a word after that. She just faded away like a snowdrop, hour by hour. And Reuben and I stared one another in the face, as if we was dead instead of her. And we went about that house a morning like sleepwalkers for days and days, not knowing whether we ate to sleep or what we done. As for the baby, the poor little mite didn't live many hours after its mother, and we buried him together. Reuben and I knew what Lovey would have liked. She gave her life for the babies, and it was a useless sacrifice after all. No, it wasn't neither. It couldn't have been. You needn't tell me. God let such sacrifices as that come out useless. But anyhow, we had one coffin for them both, and I opened Lovey's arms and I laid the baby in him. When Reuben and I took our last look, we thought she seemed more than ever like Mary, the mother of Jesus. There never was another like her, and there never will be. None such, Reuben used to call her. There was silence in the room, broken only by the ticking of the old clock and the tinkle of a distant cowbell. Priscilla made an impetuous movement, flung herself down by the basket of rags, and buried her head in Diadema's gingham apron. Dear Mrs. Bascom, don't cry. I'm sorry, as the children say. No, I won't, more in a minute. Jot can't stand it to see me give way. You go and touch a match to the kitchen fire so the kettle be boiling, and I'll have a minute to myself. I don't know what the neighbors would think to catch me crying over my drawn-in frame. The spell's over now. We're about over. And when I can muster enough courage, I'll take the rest of the baby's cloak and 
put a border of white everlastings round the outside of the rug. It'll always mean the baby's birth and lovey's death to me. But the flowers will remind me it's life everlasting for both of them. And so it's the most comforting end I can think of. It was indeed a beautiful rug when it was finished and laid in front of the sofa in the foreroom. Diadema was very choice of it. When company was expected, she removed it from its accustomed place and spread it in a corner of the room where no profane foot could possibly tread on it. Unexpected callers were managed by a different method. If they seated themselves on the sofa, she would fear they did not set easy or rest comfortable here and suggested their moving to the stuffed chair by the window. The neighbors thought this solicitude merely another sign of Diadema's pies and neatness. Excusable in this case, as there was so much white in the new rug. The four-room blinds were ordinarily closed, and the chillness of death pervaded the sacred apartment. But on great occasions, when the sun was allowed to penetrate the thirty-two tiny panels of glass in each window, and a blaze was lighted in the fireplace, Miss Hollis would look in as she went upstairs and muse a moment over the pathetic little romance of rags, the story of two lives worked together into a bouquet of old-fashioned posies whose gay tints were brought out by a setting of somber threads. Existence had gone so quietly in this remote corner of the world that all its important events, babyhood, childhood, betrothal, marriage, motherhood, with all their mysteries of love and life and death, were chronicled in this narrow space not two yards square. Diadema came in behind the little schoolteacher one afternoon. I calculate, she said, that being kept in a dark room and never being tread on, it will last longer than I do. If it does, Priscilla, you know that white crepe shawl of mine I wear to meetings hot Sundays? That would make a second row of everlastings around the border. You could piece out the linings good and smooth on the underside, draw in the white flowers and fill them round with black to set them off. The rug would be handsomer than ever then, and the story would be finished. And now, Miss Brill by Catherine Mansfield. Although it was so brilliantly fine, the blue sky powdered with golden great spots of light, like white wine splashed over the Jardin Public, Miss Brill was glad that she had decided on her fur. The air was motionless, but when you opened your mouth there was just a faint chill, like a chill from a glass of ice water before you sip it, and now and again a leaf came drifting from nowhere, from the sky. Miss Brill put up her hand and touched her fur. Dear little thing, it was nice to feel it again. She had taken it out of its box that afternoon, shaken out the moth powder, given it a good brush, and rubbed the life back into the dim little eyes. What has been happening to me, said the sad little eyes. Oh, how sweet it was to see them snap at her again from the red eider down. But the nose, which was of some black composition, wasn't at all firm. It must have knocked somehow. Never mind, a little dab of black sealing wax when the time came, 
when it was absolutely necessary. Little rogue. Yes, she really felt like that about it. Little rogue biting its tail just by her left ear. She could have taken it off and laid it on her lap and stroked it. She felt a tingling in her hands and arms, but that came from walking, she supposed. And when she breathed, something light and sad, no, not sad exactly, something gentle seemed to move in her bosom. There were a number of people out this afternoon, far more than last Sunday, and the band sounded louder and gayer. That was because the season had begun, for although the band played all year round on Sundays, out of season it was never the same. It was like someone playing with only the family to listen. It didn't care how it played if there weren't any strangers present. Wasn't the conductor wearing a new coat, too? She was sure it was new. He scraped his foot and flapped his arms like a rooster about to crow, and the bandsmen, sitting in the green rotunda, blew out their cheeks and glared at the music. Now there came a little fluty bit, very pretty, a chain of bright drops. She was sure it would be repeated. It was. She lifted her head and smiled. Only two people shared her special seat, a fine old man in a velvet coat, his hands clasped over a huge carved walking stick, and a big old woman sitting upright with a roll of knitting on her embroidered apron. They did not speak. This was disappointing, for Miss Brill always looked forward to the conversation. She became really quite expert, she thought, at listening as though she didn't listen, at sitting in other people's lives just for a moment while they talked around her. She glanced sideways at the old couple. Perhaps they would go soon. Last Sunday, too, hadn't been as interesting as usual. An Englishman and his wife, he wearing a dreadful Panama hat, and she button boots. And she'd gone on the whole time about how she ought to wear spectacles. She knew she needed them, but it was no good getting any. They'd be sure to break, and they'd never keep on. And he'd been so patient. He'd suggested everything. Gold rims, the kind that curved around your ears, little pads inside the bridge. No, nothing would please her. They'd always be sliding down my nose. Miss Brill wanted to shake her. The old people sat on the bench, still as statues. Never mind, there was always the crowd to watch. To and fro in front of the flower beds and the band rotunda, the couples and groups paraded, stopped to talk, to greet, to buy a handful of flowers from the old beggar who had his tray fixed to the railings. Little children ran among them, swooping and laughing, little boys with big white silk bows under their chins, little girls, little French dolls dressed up in velvet and lace. And sometimes... A tiny staggerer came suddenly rocking into the open from under the trees, stopped, stared, as suddenly sat down, flop, until its small, high-stepping mother, like a young hen, rushed scoldingly to its rescue. Other people sat on the benches and green chairs, but they were nearly always the same, Sunday after Sunday. And, Miss Brill had often noticed, there was something funny about nearly all of them. They were odd, silent, nearly all old, and from the way they stared, they looked as though they'd just come from dark little rooms or even, even cupboards. 
Behind the rotunda, the slender trees with yellow leaves down-drooping, and through them just a line of sea, and beyond, the blue sky with gold-veined clouds. Two young girls in red came by, and two young soldiers in blue met them, and they laughed and paired and went off arm in arm. Two pleasant women with funny straw hats passed, gravely, leading beautiful smoke-colored donkeys. A cold, pale nun hurried by. A beautiful woman came along and dropped her bunch of violets, and a little boy ran after to hand them to her, and she took them and threw them away as if they'd been poisoned. Dear me, Miss Brill didn't know whether to admire that or not. And now, an ermine toque and a gentleman in grey met just in front of her. He was tall, stiff, dignified, and she was wearing the ermine toque she'd bought when her hair was yellow. Now everything, her hair, her face, even her eyes, was the same color as the shabby ermine, and her hand, in its cleaned glove lifted to dab her lips, was a tiny yellowish paw. Oh, she was so pleased to see him, delighted. She rather thought they were going to meet that afternoon. She described where she'd been, everywhere, here, there, along by the sea. The day was so charming, didn't he agree? And wouldn't he, perhaps? But he shook his head, lighted a cigarette, slowly breathed a great deep puff into her face, and even while she was still talking and laughing, flicked the match away and walked on. The ermine toque was alone. She smiled more brightly than ever, but even the band seemed to know what she was feeling and played more softly, played tenderly, and the drum beat the brute, the brute, over and over. What would she do? What was going to happen now? But, as Miss Brill wondered, the ermine toque turned, raised her hand as though she'd seen someone else, much nicer, just over there, and pattered away. And the band changed again and played more quickly, more gaily than ever, and the old couple on Miss Brill's seat got up and marched away, and such a funny old man with long whiskers hobbled along in time to the music and was nearly knocked over by four girls walking abreast. Oh, how fascinating it was, how she enjoyed it, how she loved sitting here watching it all. It was like a play. It was exactly like a play. Who could believe the sky at the back wasn't painted? But it wasn't till a little brown dog trotted on solemn, then slowly trotted off, a little dog that had been drugged, that Miss Brill discovered what it was that made it so exciting. They were all on stage. They weren't only the audience, not only looking on. They were acting. Even she had a part and came every Sunday. No doubt somebody would have noticed if she hadn't been there. She was part of the performance after all. How strange she'd never thought of it like that before. And yet it explained why she made such a point of starting from home at just the same time each week. So as not to be late for the performance and it also explained why she had quite a queer, shy feeling at telling her English pupils how she spent her Sunday afternoons. No wonder. Miss Brill nearly laughed out loud. She was on the stage. She thought of the old invalid gentleman to whom she read the newspaper four afternoons a week while he slept in the garden. She had got quite used to the frail head on the cotton pillow, 
the hollowed eyes, the open mouth, and the high-pinched nose. If he'd been dead, she mightn't have noticed for weeks. She wouldn't have minded. But suddenly, he knew he was having the paper read to him by an actress. An actress! The old head lifted. Two points of light quivered in the old eyes. An actress, are ye? And Miss Brill smoothed the newspaper as though it were the manuscript of her part, and said gently, Yes, I've been an actress for a long time. The band had been having a rest. Now they started again, and what they played was warm, sunny, yet there was just a faint chill, a something, what was it? Not sadness, no, not sadness, a something that made you want to sing. The tune lifted, lifted, the light shone, and it seemed to Miss Brill that in another moment all of them, all the whole company would begin singing. The young ones, the laughing ones who were moving together, they would begin, and the men's voices, very resolute and brave, would join them. And then she too, she too, and the others on the benches, they would come in with a kind of accompaniment, something low that scarcely rose or fell, something so beautiful, moving, and Miss Brill's eyes filled with tears, and she looked smiling at all the other members of the company. Yes, we understand. We understand, she thought, though what they understood she did not know. Just at that moment a boy and girl came and sat down where the old couple had been. They were beautifully dressed. They were in love. The hero and heroine, of course, just arrived from his father's yacht, and still soundlessly singing, still with that trembling smile, Miss Brill prepared to listen. No, not now, said the girl. Not here, I can't. But why? Because of that stupid old thing at the end there? asked the boy. Why does she come here at all? Who wants her? Why doesn't she keep her silly old mug at home? It's her fur, which is so funny giggled the girl. It's exactly like a fried whiting. Ah, oh, be off with you, said the boy in an angry whisper. Then, tell me, ma petite cherie. No, not here, said the girl. Not yet. On her way home, she usually bought a slice of honey cake at the baker's. It was her Sunday treat. Sometimes there was an almond in her slice, sometimes not. It made a great difference. If there was an almond, it was like carrying home a tiny present, a surprise, something that might very well not have been there. She hurried on the almond Sundays and struck the match for the kettle in a quite dashing way. But today, she passed the baker's by, climbed the stairs, went into the little dark room, her room like a cupboard. She sat down on the red eiderdown. She sat there for a long time. The box that the fur came out of was on the bed. She unclasped the necklet quickly, quickly, without looking, laid it inside. But when she put the lid on it, she thought she heard something crying. And those are our stories for this evening. I hope you enjoyed The Four-Room Rug 
by Kate Douglas Wiggin and Miss Brill by Catherine Mansfield. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer March, and this is not your mother's story time.